Welcome to the FPJ podcast. I'm Michael Barker and we're here on our beautiful stand in Berlin at Fruit Logistica. And with me are my colleagues Fred Searle and Ed Leahy. Ed, who has joined us this week, and we thought, well, why just let him settle in at the office? Let's drag him around through the logistica and throw him in at the deep end. And we're going to be talking everything from packaging to robots... Romans and dogs in the next few minutes as we discuss what we've seen at Fruit Logistica 2018. So Ed, I'm going to start with you. First week in the job. How are you finding it? Are we going to see you coming back to work next week or have we scared you off for life? No, but running away forever. I say I've done, I've done a year's worth of work here in, in a couple of days, it feels like. Um, so... Uh, no, I, th- I think I'll, I think I'll put back on Monday. Um, it's been, it's been a, a big learning curve. Um, I've crammed a lot in, a lot of walking. I think my knees are giving up, so um, I'll be uh, glad to get back to London. Yes, indeed. I remember one year I uh, made the rookie fruit logistica mistake of buying a new pair of shoes uh, to, to 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 show off at fruit logistica, and of course you get horrendous blisters. And uh, yeah, I think I pretty much had to go barefoot for the rest of the trip so um right fred let's start with you what have you seen this week what's caught your eye at fruit logistica um well one of the more interesting things i heard about were uh, food scanners that was the topic of the um, future lab that i moderated um and although they do already exist they're not being widely used at the moment um they can be used to track the shelf life of products without having to cut into them um, using infrared technology Um, and apparently in China this technology is already available integrated into a smartphone Um, so who knows maybe one day in the not too distant future we'll have consumers walking around and testing the shelf life and the quality and maybe even the bricks if people want to get that nerdy about it of their fruit and veg before they buy it. That sounds really interesting, and uh, I wonder what the uh, supermarkets will think about that in terms of raising the quality level and making sure that they keep their produce constantly stocked up with the best stuff. Well, yeah, I, I can't see all retailers being uh, jumping at the idea um, immediately um, because, like you say, it does put pressure on them to deliver long shelf life, high quality, but I, I think it could be a very positive thing in, in driving up standards. Indeed, and we actually saw a video at uh, the World of Fresh Ideas conference earlier this week uh, where it was from China and they were showing a uh, basically an automatic shopping cart, which a robotic shopping cart that follows you around the supermarkets, it's sort of a self, self-driving supermarket trolley. Um, so in the days of, you know, we, we, we think it's space age that Amazon are having sort of uh, staff-free stores where you just walk out, but uh, who knows if the robots are going to be there as well. Um, Ed, give us one of your uh, innovations, or not innovations, but what's caught your eye and impressed you so far this week? Well, I think um, the thing that stood out for me most was robotics. As, as a bit of a novice to all this, uh, it was quite fun to see the machinery and um, it felt like a bit like a Victorian science fair down there at times, sort of smoke going off, these sort of newfangled, shiny brass and steel contraptions. Yeah, I enjoyed a robotics talk um, by uh, Dr. Richard van der Linde, um, and uh, he sort of had the mad scientist vibe, and he was talking about using camera technology, which I've, I've seen it thrown around before, but his machine actually puts it into use, and it... Um, 
scans uh, every piece of lettuce and cabbage and so determines its exact proportions and then decores it um, and it's surprisingly that, that kind of technology is still in its kind of test phase and uh, Nature's Way Foods in the UK are the, the only guys um, using it at the moment I think they have exclusive rights to it um, but it's going to be uh, rolled out a lot more in the future not just from van der Linde but probably from other producers perhaps you know more about it than I do but uh, I mean, th that was a bit of sci-fi there to, to enjoy um, and yeah, other than that, uh, I, I just it was good just to speak to um, sort of UK UK growers, suppliers, importers, companies, just to learn about um, how the trade works, really, and keep up with the lingo. Absolutely, and there's certainly been a lot of happening on the automation front. I mean, uh, I suppose in the UK, there's huge calls for automation to come in because of the labour situation, and you know whether whether robots can replace human workers. There's certainly a big a big focus on that on on the agricultural development side uh, whether whether those developments are just around the corner or not it does sound like there is some pretty good progress uh, being made and while we're talking about sort of futuristic uh, science and so on I, I went to a very interesting talk by a gentleman from the United States Department of Agriculture who's been working over the last 17 years uh, to train dogs to detect diseases in plants basically so and dogs have uh dogs of course have way way more sophisticated sense of smells than than humans have and apparently the american government has spent they spent i believe over 16 billion dollars researching uh tech te technological uh, alternatives uh to, to detect bombs and drugs and so on. And at the end of it, they concluded that uh, they went back to dogs. So that was $16 billion well spent. Uh, but yeah, so what, what these, these, these dogs have been trained to detect citrus greening virus. And, and what they're able to do is they go around orchards and whereas a, a conventional pathological test would take... Uh, days or, or longer to, to detect whether there's a virus there the dogs can do it instantaneously and they, to a much higher success rate of over 99% so you know uh, every farmer has his dog but if, if every farmer has his dog that's trained to spot uh, diseases then how's that for multitasking I think, I think we could be seeing a lot more dogs on farms in future <laughs> Fred uh, over to you again what, what else has caught your eye this week um, well, a lot of what I've been hearing about from various suppliers um, are shortages and um, challenges in, in maintaining supply. Um, so in um, bananas, um, for example, I've been hearing that supply is particularly tight at the moment um, with a lot of supply coming from Costa Rica, which has been badly hit by vessel delays. Um, the main port to Europe, uh, Puerto Limon, um, is uh, inundated with ships, especially at this time of year, um, with banana, a lot of bananas, pineapples, melons all coming out of the port. Um, and although a new terminal is set for completion next year, it's having a big knock-on effect, especially because um, there are lots of other uh, 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 vessels using, using the ports. Um, and this has been compounded uh, by difficult weather um, very low temperatures, heavy rain, 
um, and that's delayed the start of the melon season, for example, which has also suffered um, as a result of these logistical problems. Interesting. I mean, in fact, I noticed on our we, we run uh, retail price analysis every fortnight in FPJ, and, and I noticed that the banana price has gone up a couple of pence in a couple of the supermarkets. Has there been any suggestion from anyone that you've spoken to that, that uh, there may need to be further increases as a result of this? Um, that is a question that I asked, um, and it, it, the answer that I got was vague but it seemed that that is by all means a real possibility um, the cost of bananas at the moment is still I mean rel relatively low given given the production process and, and the ripening and everything um, so and give, yeah given these given these transport and growing um, challenges um, I think and, and with brexit and exchange rates I think that's a, a real possibility in the future Indeed, you mentioned Brexit, and uh, there was quite a good British presence at this year's show. There was uh, the AHDB had a very nice new stand. Actually, it was it was brighter, it was bigger, it was uh, had more space for for meetings and so on. Uh, and I suppose this is the opportunity to to fly the flag for Britain uh, and Fred to come to you again. You've uh, just produced a supplement uh, for us, uh, looking at why Britain is open for business, and give us a few reasons for optimism for you know we, we all know the reasons the many reasons why brexit is bad news for the industry and is extremely complicating people's lives but but did you get some reasons for optimism from those british exhibitors that you spoke to um i think one of the um main uh, potential growth markets um post brexit is is cherries and and that's not that's not solely down to Brexit because it's a it's an industry that has been growing over the past few years thanks to a lot of new plantings um, but there are companies there that have started exporting British British cherries for the first time um, one of them being um, West International uh, wholesaler WT Hill who were featured in the supplement um, and it appears that there is there is real demand for British produce um, like cherries um, because they have a different flavour profile, um, a different appearance to some of the other European cherries on the market um, and with exchange rates as they are at the moment there are opportunities um, for cost effective um, exports. Um, the fact that Britain is a net importer makes the overall picture slightly more problematic. Yeah. I think just uh, from my first impressions, I, I thought when I came here, there'd be a lot of talk about sort of doom and gloom um, and sort of problems with Brexit. And I perhaps expected the stools to sort of unload a, a sort of whole litany of issues. But actually, when I spoke to British companies, they, a lot of them seemed very sanguine about it, quite calm. I spoke to Jepco today, and one of the major things that keeps coming up is, is labour shortages is the main issue because it's so dependent on seasonal workers. And uh, I think it was Tony Paduan, who's the, the managing director, just was quite calm about it. He said, we have a plan in the strategy and we're confident it's going to work to, to um, recruit workers. Um, and he said it has been working. And so, yes, it's an issue. The National Union of Farmers um, have just released a report saying how much of an issue it is. But um, it seems like uh, it's well within uh, companies' means to sort of uh, to solve solve those problems. And as we were talking about earlier, robotics is one way going forward. But at the moment, they seem to be able to... 
have, uh, well, they seem to be positive about uh, matching those issues. So. Yeah, well, let's hope so. But we can't deny that there are obviously huge numbers of problems, no, not least because of labour, exchange rates and so on, but there's also a bit of an issue uh, for the seed companies, isn't there, Fred? Um, yeah, so I've spoken to uh, a couple of um, major UK seed companies um, in the past couple of days, um, and one of them, CN Seeds, told me that they are considering um, relocating to Europe. Um, the Netherlands was mentioned as a potential um, country because of the support that the government gives its seed companies there. Um, but there, there, there are major concerns in, in several key areas. One, one of them is um, the cost of listing uh, commercial varieties. Um, another is the potential need for phytosanitary certificates um, for exports to the EU, which currently aren't required. Um, and there's also the issue of whether plant varieties um, will in fact be protected um, as they are under EU law uh, when, when the UK exits. Um, and as it stands, post-March 2019, these seed companies could see all of their patented varieties without protection and therefore open to be copied essentially. Um, and although that seems unlikely to happen. Um, it's, it's, still, it's still a pressing concern. Um, and another company I spoke to, Toza Seeds, said that since they have operations in Spain and they have warehousing there, they were talking about maybe shifting a greater proportion of their seed to, to those facilities um, in order to get around some of the additional costs of exporting to the UK at the moment. Yeah, we're certainly seeing a huge amount of shifting going on in terms of, of what companies are doing and, and the amount that they're trying to operate abroad. Uh, you look at some of the work done by Nationwide Produce recently, they've uh, been expanding their Dutch operation, they've, uh, they're doing more in Spain. You look at the tie-up between Berry World and Beakers that was announced this week. Uh, everybody's sort of bolstering their operations abroad. Geez, we know that have been... Doing, doing work in Poland and another other, number of other operators are, tr are trying to figure out whether well, things could even be as severe as having to grow the produce abroad and then import it back to the UK, which is, seems like an absolutely crazy consequence of Brexit, given that uh, the one opportunity the government would like us to think that we have is to, to increase production here. But of course, if we don't have the labour uh, and we can't afford to do it, it's going to be absolutely impossible to do that. I'm delighted to say uh, our managing director, Chris White, the MD of FruitNet Media International, has joined us on the pod here. Uh, welcome, Chris. Hello, you've, Michael. You've been coming to Fruit Logistica since the very beginning. 26 years ago. Yeah, the first one was 26 years ago here in, in Hall 26. And it's, uh, it's morphed a bit since then, hasn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it's grown incredibly. I remember the first uh, uh, Fruit Logistica, there were two, two uh, gangways. And there must have been about 30 exhibitors, I think, and we were one. And, um, uh, yeah, and we've been coming up every year since. And it's amazing that the, sh the, f the show keeps on growing. It grew by 3,000 square metres last year. I can't remember how much the growth was this year. Um, and I always am amazed that this has all been achieved without uh, Berlin having a major international airport. If you want to get here from outside Europe, you've got to fly from somewhere in Europe. So you've got to connect through London or Frankfurt or wherever. 
And if you think if you're sitting there in Santiago in Chile or Buenos Aires or wherever in the world, um, Berlin's not the easiest place to get to, and yet thousands and thousands of people come here. Mm. And as we've seen, you know, there are, I think, three, more, than, more than three and a half thousand exhibitors this year. And it's remarkable. It's really good to see a presence, a very strong presence from Britain. Um, and I think it's needed at, at this time in particular. Uh, and B British um, companies always, have always been at the forefront of, uh, of introducing new ideas in, in fresh fruits and vegetables, and certainly in terms of the supply chain. And I think it's great to see so many new producers here because I think uh, we've got a lot that we can give to, uh, to the world, but especially to, to markets close to home here in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, just talking to some of the British producers, they have the ambition that, that, that one day we could have a whole British hall here, not, not, just, not just a pavilion or a stand with eight or ten companies, but uh, in the same way that the, the Andalusians or the Extremadurans or, or some of the regions of Spain even have whole halls to themselves, that, that the Brits could, could do something similar. Well, I, th I think that's uh, perfectly possible. I mean, as you know, Michael, we do all the sales for fruit logistics in, in, uh, in the UK and we've detected a great deal more interest in recent years um, so much so that uh, they've been delighted with the growth that we've seen and I think there's every opportunity for us to try and do something there and we really need to galvanise the sector to come here. You can get from uh, London to Berlin or even in fact from, from Birmingham to Berlin rather faster than you can sometimes get from London to Birmingham by car, you yes. know, it's, uh, it's an easy place to get to, it's very cheap to stay here the food is good, the beer is plentiful and uh, the people are wonderful and it's so well organised I think uh, everybody needs to come not necessarily just as an exhibitor it's good to come as a visitor it's a very easy thing to do and you can come here for use even with just one night's stay two full days of visits here and it's really worthwhile and the show continues to evolve doesn't it if you've been in the past it doesn't mean you're having the same experience again this time what's, what's new at the show this year? Um, I think the, the organisers have tried very much to try to segment, if that's the right word, the show, in terms of giving people more of a geographical feel of where they are. So, you know, they, they pay a lot of attention to making sure that countries um, are, are co-located with other countries where it makes sense. So you find, as, as we have done for several years now, all the Latin Americans in one hall. They've placed a new hall this year, Hall 26, with a lot of the African countries there. You find halls which are full of Italians, a French hall, the United States of America close to um, other parts of Latin America, Central America, uh, and, uh, and, and I think that works very well because, of course, you know, people always say it's such a huge place and it's almost too big. I think, I think frankly speaking, they need to organise their visit better. It's not just a question of pitching up and saying, right, where do I go? It's about really planning what you do, and you can do that much more effectively these days with the, uh, uh, with the online tools that they have, the virtual marketplace, so you can go and find out exactly where every, exhi every exhibitor is. Um, and really make the most of your time and, uh, and I think that's what people need, need to do more. And there's also a new multimedia element isn't there with yeah. the uh, Fruit Logistic uh, Fruitnet TV studio. Uh, we've all been enjoying our, our moments behind the camera with that. <laughs> uh, what was the thinking there and why, why is that being created for the first time this year? Well I, I think we've had some excellent presenters. I think you've been the new Deslinum, if I could put it, of the fruit business. Ah, my, my life is complete. It's, it's what I always wanted to hear. And I'm, I'm worried we're going to lose you to the one show soon, Michael. But uh, no, I think it's gone really well. And I think it's a, a really nice uh, way of introducing a new aspect to things. I think um, the idea is, of course, that we, we uh, record a number of two-minute interviews, two minutes why, because we want to make sure they're good for social media, good for Facebook, good for uh, the website, and good, of course, for Twitter and Instagram. 
and it's to you know give a flavour of some of the kind of people who are here. So we've had people from you interviewed a lady from Rwanda, Rwanda who was here That's for the right. first yeah, time. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and uh, the minister from Panama as well. So we had a really wide mix of, of international figures to talk Absolutely. to. And I interviewed a few people from. There was one, uh, um, uh, the marketing business development manager of Fife's, uh, based here in, in continental Europe, and they're doing a huge project now about trying to drive segmentation within the banana category, trying to come up with more than what we just currently have, which is one, you know, uh, one banana effectively and nothing else. Yeah. Um, I think it's been really good fun to, to do that because I think people have been excited by it. I think it's a question of reaching out to people here at the show, but also all over the world who I guess would be kicking themselves uh, having not come here but the good thing is is it's only 12 months till the next one <laughs> and uh, uh, you know and, that, and those 12 months seem to go through go by remarkably quickly I, I think we've also had a very good uh, we've had to rethink the way we do things here at, uh, at Fruitness as well because we always used to kind of arrive here at our stand and then we wouldn't see each other for the rest of the day which we galloped off there's been a lot more kind of media that we we've had to do and that's what we are experts at and uh, I think it's been a really good reflection on us that we've managed to do so many of these interviews and pre present it in a very interesting and informative way um, and you just need to go to the Fruit Logistical website uh, fruitlogistica.com or on Twitter it's the same fruit underscore logistica to see all these videos and uh, you'll see Michael in all his glory as the, uh, as the new interviewer par excellence. Ah, <laughs> oh, you're making me blush, Chris. Uh, and in fact, we've been doing a series of uh, video interviews as well for the AHDB. And so those videos are, well, snippets are available already on Twitter and there's going to be more. We're going to be running them as a series of video interviews over the next coming weeks on our channels and on our news alerts. So look out for that. We've spoken to a wide range of leading industry figures from Jackie Green from Berry Gardens. Uh, we've spoken to... Simon Truin from Pratt's, uh, we've had uh, Sarah Calcutt from Avalon, we've got a really good selection of uh, big video interviews. I think, um, I think it's very interesting, Michael, that you're doing so much more on this at the FPJ. I mean, you know, the FPJ has always been at kind of the forefront of doing new things. We were the first magazine into the market 120 years ago, at the time of Queen Victoria. Um, we were the first magazine to adopt uh, um, uh, desktop printing, desktop publishing in the 1980s. We've been doing all sorts of things at the FPJ and I think it's fantastic that we're right at the cutting edge of doing new social, new media, which I know kind of is an old thing nowadays, but actually in many ways it's new for the industry. And I think it's a credit to you and, and the guys at the FPJ that we've really managed to get a really good uh, position for the magazine online as well as in print. And we're going to see more of that in future because I think nowadays that's the way people like to consume their, their news and information. It's by you know, nice things like this podcast that they can listen on their car home or when they're bored at work one day or where they're not bored at work one day and want to use it uh, for all sorts of good reasons. And I think the FPJs are really essential, becomes more essential to people by the day, I think. Marvellous. Thanks very much, Chris. Well, our Spanish and Latin American editor, Mara Maxwell's joined us now. Uh, Mara, it's lovely outside. There's clear blue skies and it's not quite as cold as we were expecting, but uh, the weather's not been quite so good in Spain, has it? Uh, no, indeed, half of it's under a blanket of snow and the bit that's not snowy is very, very chilly. Um, so all of the southern and uh, southeastern half where our, our, winter, our winter vegetables come from uh, has uh, felt the uh, chill recently and uh, there's a fear that that's going to impact on supply in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, have we heard any particular examples of crop shortages yet? Uh, not yet. Uh, they think that leafy vegetables are going to be the worst affected, obviously, um, but it's still too early to tell uh, exactly what the effect is going to be. They'll have a clearer picture in the next week or so, they think. Of course, salads uh, made front page news in the UK uh, a year ago, didn't they, when, the, when there were shortages and uh, there were stories of people having to, supermarkets having to ration the number of heads of iceberg that people were allowed to buy. Uh, let's hope there's no kind of repeat of that. Have you heard any indication that things have got anywhere near that sort of level? No, and I think they're quite keen to downplay um, that whole side of it and uh, to sort of reassure people that it's not going to be anywhere near as it was about, uh, last year. Uh, they've already sort of started uh, contingency planning and programming and what have you. There will be a slowdown, there will be some shortage, but there won't be empty, empty supermarket shelves, I hope. Good stuff. And, of course, uh, the, the Latin American contingent are here in force, which... Uh gives me the perfect time to flag up the fact that we're going to be launching a conference in Colombia. Isn't that right? Tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. This is Colombia's moment uh, and we're going to be there hopefully right at the beginning. Uh, uh, we want to bring our expertise to bear and uh, to really put the world's attention on Colombia and uh, its potential in so many new products, not least uh, Hass Avocados, which is, you know, the hot product at the moment. Uh, we've had a lot of interest going around uh, about the event. Uh, so, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see a lot of people there um, who are very interested in sourcing from Colombia, investing in Colombia and, uh, and also uh, all the industries that support the actual production itself. It's a really interesting country. I, I've travelled a bit in South America but never unfortunately managed to make it to Colombia until this June, I'm, I'm very hopeful to say. Um, but we particularly associate it with bananas and with cut flowers, I think, in the UK. But what other products do they grow there that, that, that maybe are going to get more attention going forward? Uh, well, they grow a whole wealth of exotic fruits, some of them we've never even seen or heard of. Um, the sort of well-known ones are Fissilis, they're the biggest Fissilis exporter in the world. Um, Has Avocados, as I mentioned, they are starting to come up very strong in. Um, and also blueberries, there's interest in uh, all the sort of high-value crops they're looking at. Um, the great thing about Colombia is it's, it can grow year-round because of the tropical climates and all the different uh, production areas. Uh, so they've got a fantastic window. They've got a Pacific coast and an Atlantic coast, which means that they can reach uh, Asia, Europe, and obviously the US. They can reach the US uh, quicker than Mexico, I was told yesterday. So, uh, yeah, there's scope there to uh, develop all sorts of things. Good stuff. Thanks very much, Mara. And... Uh Mike Knowles has just joined us, uh, our European editor. Mike's also put together a magnificent programme for Fresh Ideas this year, World of Fresh Ideas, which was a great success. Um, what caught your eye during that event, Mike? During Fresh Ideas, uh, well, there was so much. Um, there was a real buzz around uh, the content that we had, uh, content being speakers, uh, interviews, multimedia, you know, photos, video, all that kind of thing. Um, we had a very nice presentation from um, Bettina Stier Skatamakia uh, from uh, Chiquita Brands International. She's the brand director, so heavily involved in the marketing. Um, and uh, that's something you guys saw firsthand in London, the, the big yellow buses with the bananas on. Oh, yes. and, and it was a very um, smiley, playful campaign. Um, and... The, at the event that we did it was it really brought home the fact that that was part of an international campaign it's the first time that Chiquita such a historic brand well-known brand even outside of the business um, it's the first time they have taken that approach and had a unified marketing campaign in all markets so you know in, in the US uh, in 
Eastern Europe, in, in, in Western Europe, where we are, uh, Latin America, they're talking about their brand in the same way. And it's a playful, emotional connection with consumers. Um, I guess that makes it more straightforward for them. It makes it, makes it simpler to run a campaign at the same time in different countries. Um, but that was really impressive. We also had uh, Darren Clough, uh, the UK produce director from Tesco, um, who's personally been hugely involved in uh, making Tesco's supply chain much more efficient, more streamlined, um, and removing waste. And that, that was the particular thing he was talking about, was removing waste. So there were lots of really great um, video case studies from people like Barfoots, um, from AMC in Spain, um, examples of where they have uh, been able to use more of the crop. Um, Darren talked about this, this very kind of uh, uh, slightly uh, remarkable phrase, the crop flush. <laughs> did, you, you, did you hear it when he, when he talked about the crop yes. flush? So, you know, this idea that um, it's almost like a point of difference. They, they want to work with growers and they want to help them. And they, they talk a good game there. And obviously it's been difficult in the past that there's been a slightly combative relationship between suppliers and retailers in general. Um, not speaking specifically about Tesco. Um, but what Tesco seem to want to do is, um, if there is, for example, um, an, an apple crop, they're, they're aiming to take the whole crop from a supplier and not have it go to their competitors. And, and so if there's uh, an issue with one part of the crop might be hail damaged, they look to use it in different ways. They might you know, use it in uh, fresh cut. Uh, packs or they might use it in a processed um, food that is being sold elsewhere in the supermarket um, and they, they showed a great example of how that's been done with potatoes that the, the mash in their ready meals yeah. is from the same supplier yeah. uh, obviously for the suppliers who no longer supply Tesco uh, with, with potatoes who might have been competing with that, that <laughs> remaining supplier that, that's bad news but the good news for this, the the great suppliers that they're working with is that they have a far more um, long-term approach, so yeah. three to five-year contracts, and I suspect actually that it brings a, a lot more breathing space, a lot more room to the negotiation, and, and actually it becomes a partnership, which they claim, and I think they're getting there. I think they claim that it's a partnership and a, and a good relationship, more balanced. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, of course, Dave Lewis, chief executive of Tesco, uh, is going to be talking more about this at the City Food Lecture on the 28th of February. And he's obviously uh, a little bit of a champion for food waste. He, he chairs the, uh, is it the 12.3, uh, is Champions it called? 12 Champions 12.3 group, which is a group of international, well, all, all kinds of people, really, from retailers to, to politicians to uh, NGOs and all sorts who are looking to, to reduce waste right across the piece, really. And uh, so I guess being in that position, he has to set a leadership example, which, which to be fair, Tesco are doing at the moment. The other thing that stood out for me um, was right at the end was the, um, the vertical farming project that James Hutton Limited have been working yeah. on uh, with partners uh, up in Dundee, up in Scotland. Um, and uh, that, that was quite remarkable, really. We saw um, a video which was a computer-aided design, but it, it, this vertical farm has been built now and is starting to produce its, its salad vegetables. Huge, great towers with rows and rows, racks and racks of uh, seedlings producing 
uh, salad vegetables under LED lights, so the lights are controlled, and um, that that will yield two things. It will yield a, a source of produce for a local area, so if that's replicated in other parts of the world, um, but also it's a place where they can test the conditions. Um, they can repli replicate the conditions outside. So, for example, if they want to see how plants react to some adversity in the in the production cycle yeah. they can do that get the results really quickly try try a few things to fix it and then they can go to growers outside in the more traditional field environment and say okay we know how to fix this we know how to give you more uh, uh, reassurance give you give you more predictability in terms of your supply Fabulous. I think we're going to hear a lot more about vertical farming and both above and underground, like that project uh, growing underground that's taking place in Clapham. Uh, but yeah, all kinds of things going on in that area. And I'm afraid that's pretty much all we've got time for today. So uh, big thanks to our FruitNet team of journalists, uh, not just for their contribution to this podcast but to the fine reporting work over the course of the week and we're going to be back with much more podcasts this year and so look out for those over the coming weeks and months have a good day